Today on AM to DM, we're talking about the latest on Trump's tax returns, then I'm talking to actor Brittany Snow and Saeed Jones is here. We'll see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Zach Savage, she's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to DM. Here's a tweet from Yashar Ali. Ellen DeGeneres explains how she ended up in Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones' box this weekend. She was a guest of his daughter at the Cowboys-Packers game. And she also talks about her friendship with former President George W. Bush. Let's take a look. But a lot of people were mad, and they did what people do when they're mad. They tweet. And, uh, but here's one tweet that I loved. This uh, person says, Ellen and George Bush together makes me have faith in America again. And, um, exactly. I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. We're all different, and I think that we've forgotten that that's okay, that we're all different. All right. So Ellen is a friend of George W. Bush. I feel like which... this actually was like a coming out moment for her. Mm-hmm. Like she had to come out as a friend like, of George Hi. W. Bush. Yeah. I support this man. And what makes this complicated is that George W. Bush, while he may be a friend of Ellen's, has not been a friend to folks like us for his, most of his whole life. Uh, as president, he did not support us. And he also pretty much campaigned on saying LGBTQ people do not deserve special protections. And if you want an example of what a special protection would be, let's look at this tweet today. Um, or let's look at this tweet that Ellen herself tweeted where she says, What LGBTQ people will ask the Supreme Court for tomorrow, which is today, is the right to be treated fairly and not to be fired just because of who they are. You know, just basic equality. Hashtag thank you, Amy. And she, of course, is referring to our conversation yesterday Mm -hmm. with Laverne Cox and Chase Strangio on the fact that today the Supreme Court will begin to consider, should we be able to get fired from this very job for being ourselves, which is actually insane. Yeah, which some people might be like, oh, that's my political point of view is that you should be able to fire gay people, um, you know, for being who we are. But, uh, you know, I I don't think that I share Ellen's sentiment that I want to be friends with people who uh, can't recognize my dignity and equality. Exactly. Amen. And that's the thing here is that George Bush, they can be civil all day. But the fact that Ellen is sitting in a box the week that the Supreme Court, which is now very conservative, thanks to Drumroll, George W. Bush, who has stacked it with Alito and Roberts and then campaigned for Kavanaugh to be on this bench, we will maybe lose this protection that we have or we don't have currently, and it will it will create a domino effect that LGBTQ people across this country will not be able to feel safe even on the set of Ellen DeGeneres' show. So the irony here is just super steep, and I am baffled at why she doesn't see it herself. Yeah, I guess the other thing too is I feel like you don't have to stand on a stage and like applaud for yourself over your decision. Like why even get into it with Mm -hmm. people? Why even dig yourself even further uh, into that hole and And I think what could have been amazing is if she used that moment to say, I've spoken to George W. Yes. And he has changed his mind and he will be doing X, Y, Z to stop this thing from happening because he does have a lot of political weight. But that wasn't the conversation. The conversation was that she was nice to him in a box with other rich people and that we should applaud her for that. And I will not be clapping. I'm sorry, Ellen. I will not clap for that. Well, let's take it to the timeline. What do you think of the Ellen Bush debacle? Let us know using the hashtag am to dm All right. Well, here's a treat from Joyce Karam. Update, U.S. Syria, Syria, Turkey. U.S. blocks Turkey from airspace. White House walks back Trump. Withdrawal comment. U.S. moving troops away from Turkey path, but staying in Syria. Mitch McConnell and Pelosi both criticize Trump approach. Here's a tweet from Hayes Brown. There are too many plot lines. Here to help us understand what's happening is BuzzFeed News World editor and senior reporter Hayes Brown. Good morning. Good morning, guys. Okay, so your tweet 
pretty perfectly summed it up, but let's walk this back for mm-hmm. a second. Um, this all seemed to start when Trump backed a Turkish military operation in Syria, and the White House said U.S. troops would get out of the way. Um, did I get that right, and why is this such a big deal? Because it's about 80% right. So okay, great. on Sunday <laughs> night, um, there was a release from the White House saying that Trump had spoken with President Erdogan of Turkey, and Turkey had declared basically, hey, we're going into northern Syria to conduct this operation. And the White House said, well, and we're not supporting that, but we're just going to advise our troops to get out of the way who are in northern Syria right now. So uh, Turkey just go on through, is basically the gist of what came through. While the uh, statement and everything the White House has said afterwards made very clear, we don't support Turkey on this, we don't endorse them, they also are doing nothing to really push back, it seems. Mm. So, Hayes, why does Turkey want to attack the Kurds in the first place? So, it's a long-standing issue where Kurds who are an ethnic uh, minority within Turkey, Syria, Iraq, uh, they've wanted independence for a while. Inside of Turkey, there is a group called the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, who Turkey has labeled a terrorist group. They have undertaken terrorist acts in the past, um, but they uh, they have an offshoot in Syria called the YPG, who's made up the bulk of the force inside of Syria that took on ISIS with U.S. air support. So it's all a bit tangled and confusing, but Turkey has always said been really big mad at the U.S. for working with these uh, Kurds inside of Syria. They said it's uh, destabilizing to them. They said that it's bad for their own security. So uh, late last year, the U.S. and Turkey agreed, okay, we're going to have the Syrian Defense Forces, which again are mostly made up of Kurds, move back from the Turkey border, destroy all of their defensive fortifications there as part of a security mechanism that the U.S. would be helping enforce. Uh, Turkey has been mad about that the whole time and finally apparently told Trump look, F it, we're going in, uh, so you can be with us or not at this point. And Trump basically caved. Okay, so help us understand uh, the U.S.'s relationship um, with the Kurds just a little bit more. Um, What are some of the uh, concerns if the U.S. abandons the Kurds? So a couple of concerns. Um, First and foremost, it's uh, so they were huge in helping defeat ISIS. They took uh, the bulk of the losses in terms of casualties and fatalities when fighting ISIS in Syria. The U.S. barely lost it, didn't really lose anyone. We've just been providing air cover, air support, and a few special, and about 100 or so special operations forces are based in Syria to provide training and support and things of that nature. Uh, So on the one hand, it's if you help us, then you are probably not going to get much out of it is the lesson that seemed to be coming from this. Uh, On the other hand, there's the fact that Turkey doesn't, there's a concern that Turkey will not distinguish between Kurdish fighters who might be wanting to attack Turkey and just Kurdish men of a military age. And there is very serious concern that in this military operation, Turkey will not take human rights into accord and just push and just kill. Mm. Well, there are are many bits of this story to unpack. Um, Here's a tweet from Tim Mack. Minutes apart, Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader McConnell call on Trump to reverse on Syria. Pelosi, quote, decision sends a dangerous message to Iran and Russia. McConnell, quote, a precipitous withdrawal of U.S. forces from Syria would only benefit Russia, Iran, and the Assad regime. Um, Why has Trump's decision received bipartisan condemnation? Well, because in this day and age, uh, even while Trump does a bunch of terrible things to the Constitution domestically, there's still a bipartisan consensus for the most part, especially in the Senate, uh, about foreign policy and how that should be conducted. So when Trump... Uh, out of nowhere, because he didn't consult with the Pentagon or state or anything. This all happened very quickly, it seems, on this 
Sunday night call with Erdogan where Trump made this decision. So they're pushing back on process. They're pushing back on the way it looks for the region. And they're pushing back because, uh, as they said, Russia and Iran have been helping push, boost up the Assad regime in Syria while the U.S. has been there. We've been trying to just defeat ISIS and really not trying to just eat our own food, basically, as it were. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that if U.S. troops withdraw, Turkey comes in, things are way more destabilized. That only benefits Russia and Iran's forces in the region. That only benefits the Assad regime to solidify even further. So it's all a very tangled mess. Tangled mess. Well, let's bring it full circle with this tweet from you, Hayes. Trump impeachment. Turkey wants to attack Kurds. Trump Tower in Turkey. Trump likes Erdogan. Trump launched a distraction from impeachment that benefits Trump businesses is something that seems very plausible for someone looking for connections to make sense of everything. So Hayes, how many of these connections are actually reaching? I think quite a few of them are a bit of a reach. Like, uh, it's an undisputed fact that Trump has business interests inside of Turkey. He has several uh, Trump Towers uh, there. It's indisputable that Trump likes Erdogan. He's always liked strongmen uh, leaders. But where it gets messed up, in my opinion, is trying to make the connection that this is all part of some grand strategy from the White House, that, oh, impeachment proceedings, we need to do something to distract people from that. I know. Let's tell Erdogan he can go in against the Kurds. That I can see why people would want to try and draw all this together, to string it all together, but it doesn't quite make sense as, you know, a narrative. It doesn't make sense, especially when you consider the fact that no one in the administration was prepared for this. And this wasn't some, like, grand scheme. This was a—and even the president seems to be walking it back, it seems like now. Uh, I remember seeing one senior official was anonymously quoted saying that, yeah, even Trump is, realizes, oh, I think I did this wrong, and is trying to walk back his comments and his uh, what seemed like at the time support for the Turkish operation. But where this is a problem for me is the fact that strategic mis miscommunication is a really dangerous thing when it comes to the way the countries talk to each other, because when you have that, you have a situation where you can just stumble into war because either country thinks that they're be they have someone else has their back and will defend them if they do go on the offensive, or they think to themselves that they have you know a green light or they misreact to a threat from someone else and just things get violent in that way. Mm -hmm. Well, Hayes, thank you so much for breaking this down. Glad to be here as ever. Here's a tweet from MSNBC. In the legal fight for his, Trump, his tax returns, President Trump's lawyers argued he can't be criminally investigated. A federal judge rejected that claim, writing, this court finds aspects of such a doctrine repugnant to the nation's governmental structure. But don't get too excited. Here's a tweet from Zoe Tillman. Things are moving fast. The second, uh, second granted... Uh, the Second Circuit granted a temporary stay of the subpoena to Trump's accountant while the court takes up the case on an expedited basis, TLDR. It appears the New York District Attorney's Office is not getting Trump's tax returns today. Let's go live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning. Good morning. So tell us why the judge ruled to release Trump's tax returns. Yeah, I mean, essentially the judge came out and blasted the Trump administration's legal argument, or I'm sorry, not the Trump administration, but Trump's legal arguments, uh, that essentially the president and his family and associates are immune to any kind of investigation or conviction of any crime at all. Uh, he said this is essentially the very concept of having a king that was rejected by the founders of this country. Uh, so an extremely forceful, extremely forceful rebuke. But of course, as we've seen in all of these cases, the Trump administration, when they take a loss at uh, any court level, they turn around and they appeal and they just keep grinding it out. 
Wow. So they've filed this appeal and it's on a current stay. What do the next steps look like for this case? Yeah, so it will go to the Court of Appeal, uh, which in theory, you know, could uh, could uh, rule to release uh, release these documents. Um, anything along those lines will, of course, be immediately appealed again by the Trump administration. Uh, as I say, this has been their argument for their strategy for a while now is to appeal these court decisions all the way up to the Supreme Court if they need to. So the New York District Attorney's uh, Office is at the center uh, of this case. Um, can you remind us uh, why they were investigating Trump? Wh- yeah. his tax which, which of the many? Yeah, no, <laughs> yes, it's please, uh, hard please. to keep track of all of this. This one, remember, this is the, the throwback of the uh, uh, two women who claim to have had affairs with Trump and then been uh, bought off uh, in, a, in a way that may have actually violated election laws. Uh, that is what initially kicked off this investigation, though, um, we're not. I mean, we're not really sure. Uh, we know so we can gather clues from what the grand jury has been subpoenaing, but um, it, it, there have been signs that the scope of this investigation has expanded quite a bit. Uh, but uh, uh, we just don't really know right now. All right. Well, Paul, where do we stand with Congress's pursuits for his tax returns? Mm-hmm. Well, so uh, Congress has been uh, had a series of legal victories. The issue is that then the Trump administration appeals. I mean, it seems pretty clear at this point this is a strategy to just buy time and try to wait them out, essentially. Uh, obviously, in the next in the next election, if uh, Republicans were to take over control of the House, they would drop all of these inquiries. And I guess that is essentially the hope, is just hold out till then. Uh, because we've seen the Trump administration essentially refuse to hand over anything willingly to any of the half dozen or so committees that are investigating him. Mm, Hold out eventually. Well, here's a tweet from the New York Times. Breaking, the Trump administration blocked a top diplomat, Gordon Sondland, from sitting for a deposition today with impeachment investigators in the House. So, Paul, what does this mean for the inquiry now? I mean, this, in my opinion, places the odds of impeachment uh, at like 98% in the House. Uh, We now have, uh, this is a whole new level of obstruction, uh, not just the Trump administration, you know, refusing to hand over documents because they have, they have so far uh, signaled that that is what they're going to do. But now uh, just keeping witnesses from being able to go and testify. uh, I mean, this is just a complete all at war at this point. Uh, You know, Democrats essentially have, a few options here. I mean, you can you can go to the courts and we see how that's working out as we were just talking about, uh, or impeachment is your other your other tool you have in the war chest there. And that we've we saw today Adam Schiff, head of the House Intel Committee, essentially saying uh, this is obstruction, this is blocking the constitutional duties of the House to investigate the executive branch. And uh, I mean, I just I just don't see how this goes any other way at this point. Mm, Well, Paul, thank you so much for jumping into that breaking news so well. Yeah, yeah, we'll keep watching it. I mean, this is all just uh, going on uh, breaking as we speak. (laughs) Yeah. Well, later on, Zach sits down with former AMTDM host Saeed Jones. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Welcome, Welcome back, back y'all. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
We're having a current debate. We are here. having a debate. There's and a debate if you want to get engaged in some real time fire tweets, go to my handle <laughs> and see a little tweet about Robin songs, which we're going to get to later, um, and partake in this because Alex is currently getting roasted. I really am, but we're just joking about this. <laughs> the reason we could not get it together to welcome you back correctly is because we're both cracking up over this. Yes. So, because yeah. Alex is getting just drag me. It's like, nice. I don't care. What don't you care. all don't know is I get dragged mostly when the cameras aren't on, so Alex is getting. Dragged. I am willing to get dragged for this. Perfect. So, well, yes. let's get started Let's with get, these yes. so we can get to yeah. your dragging list. <laughs> Chase, you tweeted, I'm telling FAFSA, y'all smoke a jewel pot a day. And FAFSA's gonna see, you Snitches. actually have money to buy these jewel pots. Snitches. <laughs> snitches get snitches. We're <laughs> joking, kiss emoji. You tweeted, you break up with someone and all of a sudden, y'all in a race for who can have the most fun on Snapchat. You've been there. <laughs> I, have I actually don't know if you have. I have, I, well, I have, I do this annoying thing where like, Someone breaks my heart, I work harder. So there have been times I've like flown to like Kansas to do a story so I could stop answering my phone and break up with someone. You're like, I'm let me a- show you how well I'm doing by just working all the time. And then never falling in love again. It's a really productive thing. Oh. Wow, that was really dark. Oh. Let's take it to the timeline. <laughs> <laughs> what is the wildest thing you've done after a breakup? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. I guess mine was work. Yeah. Mm. I, I have to say mine is probably the same thing. Not, I'm not very self-destructive, so like, you know, go work, do productive things. Okay, Caroline, you tweeted. Well, I may never own a house or be able to give my kids a good education, but at least I did spend $150 on the pre-order for Rihanna's new coffee table book, Sound Financial Decision. I mean, I support. I stared at my phone for like a good five minutes last night, being like, do I pre-order now? Uh, or should I wait? You know, climate change is going to ruin us all in about a decade, so you might as well get the coffee table book that's going to make you happy. I love that's our excuse for every bad habit. But, like, also not climate wrong. Change. Not wrong. Fine. Climate change. Climate change. All right, Daniel, you treat it. For Danielle. Snobbery about Comic Sans is the latest front in the culture wars between the elites and Joe Sixpacks of America. In this essay, I will. Okay, so this refers to uh, Rudy Giuliani. Dear and the, Giuliani. the lawyer wrote a Comic Sans, uh, a letter in Comic Sans, I think it was his lawyer. Yes. Um, and which I feel like that's just trolling me. I thought it was just him trolling. I don't think that lawyer actually uses Comic Sans every day. I think Giuliani is just king of trolls. He just knows. Yes. Because it looks actually fake. Yes. Yes. Just yes. like his pursuits to not look like he's doing something illegal. Fake. <laughs> Tweet of the day? Yes. From Gary from Team Mom. Me, no ho shit tonight. Me after one white claw. That dog really <laughs> dropped it. I, <laughs> that dog had one white claw, it was over. Is that what they do? Because I have never had one actually. I've had the truly, but I've Oh, okay, a got white it. Claw. See, your problem is that you need to go through a breakup, and then instead of going to work, you need to drink some white claw. Well, I need to find a man first. <laughs> well, right. step one. Okay. Step, step one. So find me, break up with me, and then we can do this. <clears throat> Cory Booker. Anyway. <laughs> Later on in the show, I'm sitting down with former AM to DM host Saeed Jones. But up next, we are talking best songs of the decade or when Alex gets dragged. <laughs> it's true. Here's a tweet from Pooja Patel. I'm proud to introduce Pitchfork's Best of the 2010s project, a two-week series of lists, essays, and features that took our staff nearly six months to make. Wow. And here's a tweet from Miles Tanzer. Pitchfork, sorry to this lady. <laughs> Ooh, Don Giovanni Rex tweeted, leaked photo of Pitchfork making its Best of the Decade list. 
And you can see that uh, says, like, you know, whatever, whatever. Which was how some of this list felt at various moments. Yes, for sure. And you know, we're about to enter the season in which we have a lot of these lists. It's now the end of a decade. People don't realize this. But this, after this year, we are done with the 10s. Which, is that what it's called? The 10s? It is the 2010s, yeah. It's something like that's not what, sexy. We are. Yeah, well, a lot of times I feel like these lists are just intended to troll us anyways and, so, mm-hmm. and make us all mad. And uh, let me tell you, this one did a little bit of that for me. Okay, get me mad. Um, okay, so the number one song on this list is Kendrick Lamar, All Right. Okay. Number two, Grimes Oblivion. <laughs> what is Number- a Grimes? Okay, hold on. <laughs> Number three, Robin Dancing on My Own. Number four, Beyonce Formation. Okay. Number five, Frank Ocean, Thinking About You. I just, my, my first reaction was I don't understand how Grimes Oblivion outranked Formation. Or Frank Ocean. That's garbage. Yeah. Gosh. Well, then my second thought was... Robin Dancing on My Own is not the superior Robin song. Call Your Girlfriend is a superior Robin song. So you are a masochist. That is my truth. Well, if you go to my Twitter, as I said earlier, you will see Alex get eviscerated because literally <laughs> no one has this thought besides Isaac Fitzgerald, I think. Yeah. And Isaac is also the one that washes his faith, face with like Are we uh, really going back to this? Water. Are we yes, really going back to this? Go. Yes, okay. He uses okay. gas station water and washes his face. So I'm glad that that's the hill that you both are dying on, but the rest of us and not Trump's America right now, are doing. (laughs) Wow. Okay, let me just explain to you why I feel that Call Your Girlfriend should be ranked higher. Um, I find it to be a catchier bop. I do. Okay. And I think it's relatable, more relatable than Dancing on My Own in some ways. Have Um, you found yourself telling someone to Call Your Girlfriend? I mean, it was definitely probably something that happened in my life and that song really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. But I do, I just think like Call Your Girlfriend, I would rather hum that song. I don't know. Did you play you know? it after a breakup once? Yeah, I mean, I've played a lot of Robin music after breakups and okay. like weird romantic emotional times. Okay. So, that so loops Robin us back. has gotten me through, but. That, that loops us back to the wildest thing Alex has done after a breakup is consider Call Your Girlfriend a better <laughs> song than Dancing on My Own. This is still, this is a cry for help. <laughs> this really is this a cry for help? This. It might be a cry for help. We could do a lot of like Freudian analysis of why. This is a song. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know what? Like of all things short, like just drag me on the internet over this. That I can handle. I mean, so. I'm just glad that we all agree Robin deserves to be in the top. Yes, five. and that. Because her latest album, Honey, the song Honey itself, amazing, incredible. Yeah, I like I The like live your performance album. of it, amazing, incredible. So Robin deserves all of these flowers. Okay, well, that's where we're going to leave this on. Bye. We do want to hear from you, though. What's your favorite song of the 2010s? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm Well, up next, Alex sits down with Scott Wolf and Kennedy McMahon to talk about their new show, Nancy Drew. Hunt tweeted, Okay, first Riverdale, now Nancy Drew. If the CW does a dark, sexy reboot of Little House on the Prairie, we will know they're using my childhood interest to make shows. Here with me now are the stars of the CW's new drama, Nancy Drew, Kennedy McMahon, and Scott Wolf. Welcome. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. Okay, so I am so here for the CW tapping into our love of nostalgia for this show. I agree. The Nancy Drew books were actually from the 1930s, so how does the series update it for 2019? Mm. Yeah, in a number of ways, I suppose. Um, obviously, we're seeing a more modernized take on everything. We're living in 2019, and I think that's really apparent in the way our show is cast and the way that everything looks and the way that these kids act. I think that our Nancy is a real modern American girl. Um, and she's a little messier than we've ever seen her before. She's just as meticulous and smart and brave as she's always been, but she has consequences for her actions and she makes mistakes. She's not always the perfect daughter or the perfect friend. And and I think that that's really uh, relieving because 
It's not fun to watch perfect people, I don't think. <laughs> True. Yeah, <laughs> Except <and> for Scott. <laughs> <laughs> and while the books always kind of hinted at kind of uh, supernatural type forces, she'd hear things or sense things. Uh, in our show, all of those things are real things. Mm. And so there's, there's a, a, a strong supernatural element to this incarnation of Nancy Drew. Mm. What do you think resonates so much about her character and about all of the characters in the show? Mm. I just think she's always stuck around. I mean, it's almost 90 years. I mean, happy 90th birthday, Nancy Drew. Yes. <laughs> um, that she just is this rebel with a cause that you just want to root for. I mean, we're seeing it in today's society of young, uh, like young people really bending the rules for the sake of good and finding their own way and, and kind of making good no matter, you know, what it takes. And I just think that that's always an attractive quality. And she's somebody that does it because she loves people and she thinks that everybody deserves the justice that, that you know, that they deserve. So. Yeah, she really takes things into her own hands. Yeah. Um, even out of the hands of the police at mm, times. That's true. Which is scary to a father. Yeah, yeah. and she can do everything. She can play the bagpipes. She can do Morse code with her high heels. That's she can do anything. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, your dynamic on the show, we have a clip that we can uh, take a look at. Oh, how great! Yeah. Karen was totally out of line calling you. I didn't ask for a lawyer. How about a father? You're still living under my roof. That's more than I can say for you. I've just been buried at work. Poor word choice, given recent events. Hey. You know how much I treasured your mom, but that doesn't mean now that she's gone, I don't have to attend to everything I neglected. Does that include your daughter? Okay, so clearly things are. I've never, I've never yeah. seen that before. No, that's a. No, I've never seen that. Oh, really? You're kidding! Yeah, oh no, my gosh! Well, clearly things are pretty tense between you two. Mm -hmm. um, tell me, tell me what's going on between these two characters. Well, so when our story picks up, they're still both really recovering from and reeling from a horrible loss. My wife and Nancy's mom has passed away, and so there are two people who, for various reasons, have grieved separately and kind of grown disconnected, and so. You know, there are two people who love each other very much. They have a deep well of affection and history with each other, but they've just lost the ability to really um, be okay mm -hmm. with one another. And so it's going to be a while where they're just kind of trying to work through, mm. in some ways, the fact that uh, Nancy's even still home. She was supposed to be off at college, mm -hmm. and she stayed home in the wake of her mom's death. And so we're just trying to sort of sort through what are we? what is our definition as father and daughter anymore. Yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, in real life, Scott, you are uh, a father of a party of three. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, how does doing this show um, make you feel about the prospect oh. of parenting teenagers one day? Yeah, it's terrifying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but she's pretty... Um, yeah, no, she's really up against the boundaries of what feels safe and not safe and okay and not okay, and which is one of the things that makes Nancy Drew such an indelible, incredible yeah. character. But um, yeah, I've, we've got friends with teenagers and it looks treacherous. I'm glad they're still little and think we're relatively cool and will listen sometimes. Yeah. Well, if it helps, I've always thought my parents are cool. That never went away. It didn't go away. <laughs> See? So, that can happen. It could happen. It's rare. And, that and I don't think rare. it will happen for you. But I think I'm just kidding. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of families, um, the legendary family sitcom Party of Five, it just turned 25 years old. Yeah. Um, how does it feel knowing that the show has become such a cultural fixture? You know, uh, 
I think we, we felt like while we were doing it and when it was on the air, it was something that was really special to us and special to the people that were watching it. It's bananas to me that 25 years later, uh, it still matters mm -hmm. as much mm -hmm. as it does to people. And people have found it on Netflix and other places. And so, um, yeah, it's really cool. I'm really proud. I was proud to be a part of it mm -hmm. then, and I'm proud that it still means something to people now. Mm -hmm. How does it feel to introduce yourself to a new generation, uh, especially of young people yeah. in Nancy Drew? Yeah. Well, that's, it's funny because a lot of the audience from this show maybe wasn't alive when, uh, when Party of I was on. So it really does kind of feel like while our cast is full with people, and, you know, mainly Kennedy, um, who are about to be introduced to the world at large in a massive way, and deservingly so, because they're all really incredibly talented. I feel like I'm kind of like a newcomer. There's going to be kids who are like, this new guy, Scott Wolf, is really great. Good for him at his age, making a go of it. Yeah, well, well you mentioned Kennedy introducing yourself, too. Um, this is such a, a major role. It's your first big TV network role. Um, how, how are you feeling in this moment? You know, I was just saying this earlier. I, I was feeling really quite calm about I mean, I had, when, when it all first came together, it was like all the plates of the earth like <laughs> exploded and then converged on each other and the universe was shaking. Um, but now, I don't know, since I've been embedded in the process of it, there's become a routine to it. It's felt very regular mm -hmm. and, 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 and even just the fact that it's been, the premiere's been coming up, it's like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, it'll be out, I'm so excited. And then this morning I woke up and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> it's tomorrow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's just sort of like, Ooh, yeah. well, uh, I mean, it's. It, I think because when you love something so much, you care so much that you, you really want yeah. other people to love it. And and I just hope that there are people out there that love it as much as we do and that have a good time watching it because yes. we have a really good time making it. As we say in my house, there's one sleep. You have one. Yes, one more one sleep. sleep. You both have one more sleep. sleep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, people are so obsessed with Riverdale shows, have, or uh, CW shows like Riverdale. Have yeah. you gotten any advice from any other cast members or anybody else who's on the CW? You know, I went to college with Casey Cott on Riverdale. Um, yeah, he, my, he and my fiancé were roommates in college. Um, so I spent a lot of time over there. Um, and so when I got this job, Casey was like, yes! <laughs> and so now we're both up in Vancouver and it's, it's lovely. And he gave me lots of wonderful advice and just encouragement and just to enjoy it, really, to just enjoy every step of it. And Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, before we go, um, Scott, I heard that a lot of people have named their kids uh, and even dogs Bailey after dogs your party. Bailey yeah. around out there. Um, any <laughs> predictions that uh, that'll also happen for Nancy or, or even Carson? Oh, uh, maybe Carson could take yeah. hold in terms of like human babies. It'd be weird to name your dog Carson. <laughs> no, I love that. Are there any other uh, Ned? Ned, Ned, is, uh, Ned, Ned Nickerson. Yeah, I think there might be a like an increase in girls named George. Yeah, oh. you think you know? Uh, yeah, because you're gonna Leah's who plays George is fantastic. Your guys are gonna love her. So, and I, yeah. I bet there's gonna be a bunch of Nancys. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. It's we'll a great see. name. She's got a good legacy <laughs> behind her. Sure does. Well, we have to leave it there, but thank you both so much for joining me. Thank, thank you. you. It was our pleasure. For thank having you us. so much. Nancy Drew premieres tomorrow night on The CW. Up next, Zach sits down with author and former a dm host Saeed Jones to talk about his new book.
Writer and former host of AM to DM, Saeed Jones tweeted, In January 2008, a few days after the most beautiful man I had ever kissed tried to kill me, I sat down and started writing an essay. Over the years, that essay became a book, and now you can read it. Saeed joins me now to talk about his new book, How We Fight for Our Lives, and it's back on the show! We did it! This is so weird. Know me, a Midwesterner. <laughs> She's come back more powerful, bigger than ever. Back, how back. It... it is so bright and so weird sitting on this side of the couch. I gotta tell so you. So how does it feel to be back here? Um, surreal. It's, you know, I mean, I like, I like I mentioned in that tweet, you know, I started writing about the experiences that became the heart of the book mm-hmm. literally to to process them days after they occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been formally working on this book since 2011, and then I sold it in 2015. You know, so it's been, this book, I, I don't remember what it felt like not to be writing this book. Yes. So, of course, over that, you know, you dream about, like, what it will be like, and you dream about, like, oh, maybe we'll, you know, I get this review, or will I get to talk about, you know, and now it's happening. Yes. So, um, it's it's surreal, but also, like, maybe... Maybe it is worth dreaming sometimes. Maybe good yes, things do happen. They do, and they are happening for you. I mean, New York Times is re- has reviewed it. Mm-hmm. Amazing review. Kirkus has it as a finalist. Mm-hmm. Huge things. Thank you. What is it like to see that your story as a black queer person that's mm-hmm. been through so much mm-hmm. is not only being read right now, but it's being celebrated by all the biggest institutions? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you try not to overvalue confirmation mm-hmm. from the institutions. Um, but yeah, it helps because it, it helps reach people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, that you you're able to connect with people who may not be in the loop or whatever. Um, but it, it, it you know I always just feel like it's putting another book on the shelf. Mm-hmm. You know we've got Pose and all those wonderful women. Yeah. You know we have uh, we have Bi- uh, Billy Porter out here mm-hmm. doing it. We have right. Moonlight. You know we, they're all of these other works uh, that I'm working alongside. D. Rees, mm-hmm. Sarah Broom, um, and those are just the black queer you know people that are coming to mind. So it feels good to be in company. Mm-hmm. And I feel freed that I don't have to speak for everyone. Mm. You know, I, I'm, black queer people are, of course, not a monolith. And, and I, I like that I don't feel the pressure to, to yeah. represent everyone. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah. What are some of the reactions you've seen from the book that have really struck you so far? Um, you know, I mean, it's a lot of young black queer people have started coming forward. We send out galleys over the summer preview copies. And so I've been getting a lot of Instagram messages from young black queer people. And you know, it's, when people say this is so familiar Mm -hmm. or this, I experienced something, my grandmother, you know, did this to me or gosh, you know, I had a night where I almost got killed by a guy. I was a try, you know, um, it's like, it it reminds me of the purpose of the book, but of Mm -hmm. course it breaks my heart. Yeah. You know, I wish this book was just a cultural artifact. Yeah. Um, but the truth is that I think it's um, it's an ongoing tool for what's happening now. You know, when I was working on the book, every time I would start to have doubts about like, is this gonna, uh, 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 you know, the Pulse nightclub shooting yeah. um, or the, the, the church shooting um, in South Carolina, you know, that happened literally the morning I was waking up to read the Laramie Project. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're in there in the play talking about like, this is not the Laramie I know, yes it is. And, yeah. you know, that's a conversation we're having now. Um, and then, you know, when I got to New York a couple of days ago, I was in my hotel room resting, getting ready for all of this Mm -hmm. and I uh, was on my phone and Matthew Shepard's face popped up on my Instagram and there was like a caption from a a historian who was like you know um, October 6th 11 p.m. is Mm the 21st anniversary of the night that he met those two men in in that bar in Laramie and they beat him and then was on you know he was on life support and died uh, a week or so later and it was just like gosh you know so 
It's so, yeah, so hard, but you, like I was talking about this earlier this mm-hmm. morning, is that this week is the week uh, that 21 years ago, Matthew mm-hmm. Shepard's body was found strapped to a fence, right. yeah. and he Left was not, dead. and no one knew if he was going to survive, mm-hmm. and he died on the 12th. Mm-hmm. And your book talks about that moment and yeah. how it impacted you. Um, and it was, to me, so incredible that you, this work that comes from your own kind of experiencing his mm-hmm. violence to the media right. uh, comes out the same week in which we honor his legacy. Right. Right. So what are, where is your mind at as you're thinking about LGBTQ violence and how you are kind of pushing that conversation forward today? Well, I mean, we have to keep having the conversation. Uh, I wish we didn't, but it is necessary. And, and of course, you know, black trans women mm-hmm. um, are, are experiencing it at the level of violence um, and murder. Um, that they're experiencing is beyond anything that gay men um, are dealing with. So we have to continue to have these conversations. I mean, the Supreme Court now Mm -hmm. is getting ready to debate whether you can fire someone for being trans or gay. You know, this is is not um, us looking back and seeing how far we come. This is what's going on today. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think it's important to let people know the stakes to let them understand the context. I think, you know, sometimes straight people are like, well, you know, Pose is on and and Billy Porter's like twirling on the red carpet, so isn't everything great? I'm like, no, everything's not great. In fact, many things are dire. Um, And so, yeah, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to talk about the book and I hope people connect with it and and learn from it. And it's how we fight for our lives and not how I fought for my life. Because everything I talk about the book, I want it to be in conversation with your experiences, whether we are similar or, Mm -hmm. or very different. Yeah, and so much of your book is conversations between you, your mother, mm-hmm. your grandmother, a lot of maternal figures, and yeah. they're really hard conversations. Yeah. What has it been like to have those conversations out in public for the public mm-hmm. to discuss, but also to have your family react to those conversations? Yeah. I mean, I you know, I sent the book to my grandmother, uh, my uncle, my aunt mm-hmm. before it went out, and um, I had phone, I had conversations with them, phone calls, um, and it was really good. Um, we, as you might notice in the book, we're not a family. I'm the talker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my mom was a talker, but the rest of the family. Is actually just pretty quiet, you know, mind your own business kind of people. Um, and so the book actually gave us opportunities to have heartfelt conversations. Mm-hmm. And so for my grandmother to say, um, you know, the way you wrote about your mother was really beautiful. And the beginning of the book, which is where it's really fraught for the two of us, mm-hmm. where the highest stakes for my grandmother and I, um, she said, it brings back a lot of memories. Mm-hmm. She didn't challenge, she didn't try to control or reframe the narrative. And then she was like, you know, and I don't know if this is the word for it, but the middle is kind of raunchy? And I was like, oh my God, because I told her, I was like, you, can, you don't have to read the middle. I was like, and I was like don't read about my sex life. Yeah. College, so, I mean, because you go there. I go there and now my grandmother has gone there too. Is, are you, well, you know, your grandmother's gone there, but now all your potential future, you know, men may, yes. may be going there. There was a, there was, a, there is a draft in existence of this book that technically had my uh, grinder mm-hmm. stats. Yeah. Do you remember it? who flagged this to you? Was it you? Me. <laughs> Me. <laughs> I read one of the first drafts of this and I learned so much about my dear friend Mm. and I sent him a text. I was like, are you really going to publish these stats? It was close. And you were like, oh shit, my editor read this already. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But you know, I mean, I don't know. I I think if me being vulnerable Mm -hmm. and, and talking about pain and talking about silence. I mean, you know, one of the unexpected themes that I didn't realize until readers started telling me about the book that emerges is the silence, the things Mm -hmm. that my mom and I didn't talk about, that my grandmother and I wouldn't talk about, and the way silence can metastasize Mm -hmm. and what that becomes. You know, it doesn't just go away, it acts upon you. Mm -hmm. If me going there on the page uh, can help other people even a bit, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you know, it's worth it. 
Mm. It's worth it. You know, this is a book, clearly, um, I wish I had been able to walk into the public library in Louisville, Texas and pull off the shelf. Yeah. I often think about like, what would have happened? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what would have been easier? Mm -hmm. What would I have done more? You know, if I had understood that, as I thought at the time, that I was the only gay boy in the entire town. I believed that for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I believed that being a black gay boy in America was a death sentence. Yeah. I believed that I was doomed. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is why I was so urgent early on to write and read as much as I, because I felt like I didn't have very much time left. Mm. So what, how would I have been Mm -hmm. If I didn't think I was doomed, yeah. you know, if I felt like, no, Saeed, you're going to have a rich, dynamic life. You're going to travel. You're going to host a morning show and then come back as a guest. Yeah. You know, like what, you know, right. and so what dreams may come. Yeah. Um, and so that is my hope for young people that in saying, huh, this is familiar and that's painful. Mm -hmm. They can also say, well, he did make it. Yeah. He did write the book. Yeah. So maybe I can too. And, you know, there's something that's happening in your life today that mm -hmm. I think really crystallizes this and that's you have moved to uh, Ohio. Yes, Columbus, girl. Columbus. Don't, don't you stutter God. on Columbus. I was like, where is this place called? <laughs> Columbus. And what is amazing about this is that you are thriving I in love Columbus. It so much. In a place that we as queer people were told you gotta leave. You gotta mm -hmm. go to New York City, but you've gone back. Right. What's it been like to be so embraced there? Um, it's truly wonderful. Um, I'm so happy there. I think it's a beautiful city. It has a rich, diverse community, um, a very black history because of the great migration. So cities like St. Louis, Columbus, Cleveland, Chicago. Um, so I, I love that. Um, it, I was, I was um, tweeting one day as, you know, I want to do, yes. um, that I was like, you know, Columbus is the gayest city I think I've ever lived in. And I've lived in Atlanta. Really? I've lived in New York. I've lived in San Francisco. And someone sent me a link to an article. Apparently Columbus, and I need to, like read up on yeah. it, but apparently Columbus has more LGBT people self-identified per GDP than New York or San Francisco. Wow. I was like, oh, girl, you walk it, turn on Grinder in Columbus, I well, dare you. Well, I was gonna ask, how is the trade? Lit. Lit, are you getting your life? They are all big boned. <laughs> I get the corn fed, I just heard someone grow. Well, it's true, it's true, come get you some. O-H-I-H-O, yes, it is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, and it's more affordable. Yeah. And um, by plane, it's an hour from uh -huh. New York City. You know, you say to New Yorkers like Ohio, and they're like, you, it's like you moved to Mars. Yeah. I'm like, girl, it's, it's easier. It's easier for me to fly to Columbus than it is for y'all to get to Fire Island. And that's that tea. And What's it sounds tea? like the trade is fiercer. And it is. It's great. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Speaking of fierce trade, we're running out of time. Okay. You know how this goes. One of the most memorable memorable things. I cannot talk because I'm so excited to see you. <laughs> One of the biggest things you did while you were here was rally the Outlander troops. You got those girls yes. really, really together. Shout out to my kilt daddy hive. Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so will we be seeing you live tweeting Outlander soon? I would like to. You know, they actually invited me to go to their Comic Con event. Okay. But I was like, I'm getting ready to do this. So yeah, I would like to do something in the future. They're so lovely. I do, that was such an, you know, I got sick from work and I was like home, like, you know, hopped up on cough medicine, started tweeting. Um, and I developed this relationship with this fandom and they're wonderful. And I just want to say thank you. Um, I can't tell you how many fans, um, I call them, you know, Outlander ladies, mm -hmm. you know, um, and Outlander men's, um, who send me direct messages. Mm -hmm. And they say, hi, I started following you because of Kill Daddy and I stay, and you, I've just learned a lot. Thank you. It's amazing. You know, and there's many people who are very different from me, you know, that I don't know if we would have crossed paths mm -hmm. otherwise. Um, so, I, you know, it was such a quirk. But I think, you know, something I learned in the book and I continue to learn in life, if you take your full self 
wherever you go, if you stop compartmentalizing and segmenting yourself so you can, you know, feel more, com- the, the truth is that the fullness is returned to you, mm. you know? Um, and so it's, it's been lit. It's okay. been lit. And Sam is so fine. It's I mean, so it's fine. just, what a man. What a time, it you know? It really is. Pay homage. Ooh, Ooh. Sam, come back. Slide oh, anytime. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, the couch would love you back. I'm girl. ready. I will be the leftovers. <laughs> okay, girl. <laughs> Saeed, I'm so proud of you and Thank so happy. You. Thank you so, so, so happy. It's so, I'm so excited that people get to read this book that I read a while ago mm-hmm. and read the different mm-hmm. versions with the X thing. Yes, now. the director's but, cut. Yeah, director's cut. Well, <laughs> DM me if you want that cut, girls. Uh, <laughs> but for all you out there, How We Fight for Our Lives is out today, so go buy it. And stay tuned for more AM to DM. Woo! Oh my God! <laughs> Brittany Snow has been working in Hollywood for nearly 22 years. She started in soaps, then the NBC hit American Dreams. You saw her on the big screen in Hairspray, and of course, the cult favorite, Pitch Perfect. She's currently starring in the brand new series, Almost Family. Welcome! Thank you. Thanks for having me. Almost Family premiered last week, and for those who haven't seen it, um, what, how would you describe the show? Well, it's a great balance of comedy and drama, and it's a series about an inciting incident where incident where this man who's a fertility doctor impregnates a bunch of his patients, and I am seemingly his only daughter, and I find out that I actually have many siblings I didn't know about. And so it's really about these three women who are all sisters and trying to navigate what family means to them. You said the drama. This is something that has actually happened in real life. Mm-hmm. What was your reaction when you saw the script for the first time? Well, I had heard about the Australian series Sisters, which this is based on, and um, I really loved that show. And I loved how these characters were really—they um, were actual, you know, real people. This has really happened to, but also they were—they were heightened versions of, of characters and interesting and, and really strong women. And it was shocking to know that this has really happened to so many people. And now that I've done this show, I, I've talked to a lot of people lately that are going through similar situations and it's it's shocking to see how many people there are. I, I want to get to a little bit of that, um, but first I do want to talk a little bit about your co-stars. It seems like being able to connect with them, especially uh, for a show like this, would be important. How's the chemistry on set? The chemistry is great on set. We really all like each other. We get along really well. We we are kind of in a in a meta way d- doing this. We're becoming sisters and we're living in New York City where we are all from, we're from LA and so, uh, Getting to be together in this way and having to form these bonds really quickly is is something that's really unique, but it's serving the storyline perfectly. And um, yeah, we're getting to know each other and having a lot of fun. Your dad in the show is played by Oscar winner Timothy Hutton. Um, How hard was it for you to try to understand where your character is coming from? You know, her love for her father, uh, despite what he's done. It's actually pretty easy to to take it from Julia's point of view, and I, what I love about Julia, she is the the real voice of reason in a lot of ways of of knowing that her her dad has done a terrible thing and really trying to come to grips with the fact that this is her father who is this villain, um, and making sure that he's accountable for his actions, but also knowing that it is her father and they've had a codependent relationship. And I think there's a lot of times in in life where someone does a bad thing, but you also know their father, son, friend, and trying to look at it from all sides, but yet still holding him for his actions. You mentioned the show is seeped in the other reality that people right now are doing these things like 23andMe um, and other DNA tests. Um, Have you talked to friends who've done this? Is this something you've ever considered doing yourself? I've never done any DNA testing. I I think I know where I'm from, um, and there's not much going on. I know my ancestry, but um, 
But I have actually talked to a couple of friends of mine, and recently a friend of mine discovered that she had other siblings because her father was a donor when she was before she was born, and they actually met up and had a similar situation. And it was a really you know heavy experience for her, but also she said there was a lot of levity there, and they got to talk about their similarities and you know things that they grew up with um, in terms of like nature versus nurture, and it was cool to get that perspective that actually happened. Mm. Well, we did a little digging, and I found out that your dad's name is John Snow. Yes. Any relation to Kit Harrington? I wish. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I like. I had to ask. No, you. no. I get that all the time, and I've actually met Kit. I don't think he'd ever remember in passing, and I I made that a point to say that we were related, and I don't know if he appreciated that, but he laughed and he was really nice <laughs> good, about good. it. He, yeah. he, he was uh, good spirited. Yeah. Well, you've had a, you've had a busy 2019. Um, you started in the Netflix film Someone Great that was with Gina uh, Rodriguez and DeWanda Wise. Um, both have been on our show here oh, cool. um, and combined with Pitch Perfect um, and Almost Family. Um, so I wanted to ask, is it a conscious choice that you make um, to work on projects that have really strong female leads and also female friendships? I, it's not a conscious decision, but I really appreciate that it keeps happening because I feel like maybe me as a person, I hope, or the characters that I play really um, love to be a part of like a strong centered um, female group. And I think that I, as a person, hopefully am supportive and I let people shine in their way and hopefully I shine in a way. Um, and I think that that is, you know, something that I'm proud of that I'm in those movies that really support each other. And yeah, it seems like I'm always in a girl girl group in yeah. some way. I, I, I love it. I like live for all of these kinds of movies. And Gina Rodriguez said that it's um, not easy to actually um, make friends um, in this business. Um, but you seem to do pretty well hanging out with your previous co-stars. You were with Anna Kendrick at the US Open uh, last month. So um, how do you find it is uh, to maintain friendships in this business? I just don't be a terrible person, I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I really, I, I hold true and I hold on to the people that I really value and appreciate. And, and you know, sometimes it's not everybody, but sometimes you find those friendships that were meant to be. And I've, I've found some really great, spe specifically female friendships uh, through my career, and I hold on to them. And, and you, you, like, value those and you make sure that you hang out and appreciate each other. You also reunited with your Pitch Perfect co-star, Anna Camp, for a short film called Milkshape. Um, what's the premise of that? Milkshake is a short film I wrote and directed, and it's based on a true story about me and also some mothers and children that I grew up as a child actor looking at and working with. Um, and it's really about the validation you seek and whether you get it from your parents and when that turn happens when you get the validation that you're seeking from yourself. Mm, you said that it was, uh, quote, a set built by women, lit by women, and produced by women. Why was that so important to you? I genuinely looked for the jobs uh, and for the people for the jobs that responded to the material the best and also related to it. And it just so happened that they were all women and they were the best people for the for the jobs. But also I really wanted that sort of energy to be around a story about women. This is a mother and a daughter story and I feel like that's why people related to it and worked so hard on it is because they have had similar experiences. So yeah, 90% of our crew was women. Wow. Mm. Um, let's talk a little bit about social media. Uh, you've got nearly three million followers on Instagram, but we noticed that you only follow 300 people. That's a lot more than I used to. <laughs> I've actually like, like been crazy about it. I'm like, I'm going to follow everyone now. So that's, I guess, a lot for me. Okay, so uh, is there one celebrity you're following that we would be surprised to learn that you're following? Um, Colton Underwood and Cassie from The Bachelor, I guess. <laughs> I, like, I love The Bachelor, and um, I follow all them. Padma from Top Chef, love her. Um, yeah, there's a few There's a few people that are not necessarily in my business, but that I'm a huge fan yeah. of. 
Well, I want to talk about another photo. Um, you are engaged to a very striking gentleman, if I may say oh, so myself. <laughs> and you posted a picture on his birthday saying, happy birthday to the most selfless, kind, and genuine best friend, the only one that lets me tell the same joke over <laughs> uh, about a polar bear over and over and over again. Can you please tell us this polar bear it's joke? It's a really long joke and you're not gonna laugh and it's awful. It's the only joke I have and it, the only reason that it's funny is because I do a voice that goes with it and it's like a cartoon polar bear voice where he's like, I'm very cold or whatever <laughs> and that's the only part of the joke that's funny but it doesn't make any sense. But I like to tell it a lot and he always like nods and is like, ah. You know? like it, it is true that sometimes uh, you can measure a good partner with how many times they're willing to hear the same yep. joke. I, I, know, I know this one from personal experience. He always experience. laughs, yeah. Okay, so you said that he's selfless. Um, you're gonna to marry him. He's kind and genuine. What was your first impression of him? I thought he was too good looking. Um, and I thought really? there's no way he's going to be nice because he's just too good looking. And I don't trust anybody that that's good looking. <laughs> um, and I, I was like, oh, he's too tall. He's just too perfect. He's never going to like me. So I was really nervous to meet him. Um, and then, yeah, he's actually all of the, the great things that I didn't think were possible. Oh, well, what a story. Thank Thanks. you so much for joining me. I wish that we had more time. I could just keep chatting with oh, you. Oh, thank you. You can catch Britney Snow on Almost Family every Wednesday on Fox. More AM to DM is up next. Welcome back. <laughs> can we just say how lovely it was to get to see Saeed and you sit down so, and talk about his book? Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was, I, it's, it was lovely to sit with him because he, Saeed and I have been close friends for a long time. And as he's been working on this book, a lot of us that are close to Saeed have been like giving him reviews and talking about it. And it's about his life. And many of us were involved in some of these things or even processing some of these things. Um, so to see it out in the world, and it feels like our private conversations, like secret group chat people have heard about for years. Mm-hmm. I feel like that book is kind of like a product mm-hmm. of uh, that love that we all have for him and that he has for himself and kind of the ways in which he decides to live so out loud mm-hmm. and invite us so much in. So I really, it really was nice to sit there. There were moments where I was like, Oh yeah, you're interviewing him, not just speaking. <laughs> oh, you're not just sitting here and having a conversation. We're just, just not sitting here like we yeah. do it over cocktail someday. Yes, <laughs> but it was great. And it's great to always have him back because he is the foundation to this show. As yeah, yeah. So we're always thinking about him and dear Isaac. Yes, all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into some of these yes. tweets. We asked, "What are your thoughts on Ella DeGeneres and President Bush's friendship?" Fitzer <laughs> B. Mama tweeted. This is exactly what a super rich person would say. And that is kind of the going wow. theme for a lot of stuff that Ellen, uh, a lot of controversies, the way she, that and she handles I will just add, for those who care, Aaron Schock, the disgraced congressman who's a Republican. Uh, um, there are lots of rumors about him all the time. Uh-huh. He just uh, put an Instagram story up of Ellen and George together saying, preach, clap, clap. This man pretty much defrauded his taxpayer. Right, right, right. Anyway. I'm, I'm thinking, um, you know, if you uh, have gotten the approval of Aaron Schock, these course, aren't your girls. These yeah. aren't your people. Well, yeah. I asked, is dancing on my own or call your girlfriend a more iconic Robin song? And Brianna tweeted, dancing on my own, LMFAO, no contest. And what I have to share here is that that thread is really on fire. And there's literally no one besides Isaac Fitzgerald who agrees with you on Yeah, And Bobby. guess what? I give no fucks about that at all. <laughs> I will stand in my truth of call your girlfriend being the better song. I, I just don't care. Like if this is if this is the hill, so be it. I'll, I'll create my Fine. Create, I will create a hill for myself. Those aren't even my favorite Robin songs. There are other ones. I love Honey a lot and Show Me okay. Your Love. Those are my personal favorite. I'm sorry. What did you just call it? Show oh, whatever. You just call it Show Me Your Love. It's Show Me Love. Also, yeah, seriously. It's fine. And Honey is definitely not better than both those songs. Anyway, moving on. <clears throat> okay. Well, after Zach's conversation with Saeed, Brianna tweeted. 
I've missed so much aim to DM because I've been sick and dead inside, but I wasn't gonna let this sinus headache keep me from seeing Saeed as a guest. Oh, and you know, Miss Princess Leia has been such a, a big yeah, supporter of the yes. show forever. So yeah, you had to be here, girl. You were desperately yes. needed for today. Yes, well, thank you to all of our guests, Hayes Brown, Paul McLeod, Saeed Jones, Kennedy McMahon, Scott Wolf, and Brittany Snow. And we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day, Twitter. Bye.